You know, every so often the human writers of Scripture mention something that at first glance seems to contradict good morals. For example, when we think about Lot in the Old Testament, that guy Lot, you remember him, his wife had a, a sodium intake problem. Um, <laughs> Lot, uh, we think about all the problems in Lot's life, but you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it calls Lot righteous. And sort of scratch your head if you know much about him. And then the New Testament also mentions a, a woman by the name of Rahab. And she's, a, uh, she's mentioned as an example of faith as well. Of course, if you read about Rahab, you understand her profession. She was a prostitute. And so sometimes it's interesting uh, that the New Testament or the Bible commends people who have problems here and there. But you will notice that the New Testament does not commend Rahab for being a prostitute, but rather for having faith. Faith enough in God to help out God's people. And we've got a situation uh, like that as I begin this sermon today. You see, there's a movie that I'm going to mention in a, min in a minute. But it doesn't mean that I recommend everything in that movie, especially the parts that probably gave it its MPAA rating. And the movie is uh, the 1973 film The Sting. Now, if you've seen that, you're probably old like me. Um, and it's a movie about some con men starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman, and uh, I'm going to let you ladies swoon for just a minute. But anyway, you know what a con man is. A con man is short for confidence man. And what that means is that uh, what a con man does, he builds up the confidence in his target and gets the target to trust him before he turns the tables and rips the guy off, you know, usually for money or it could be for a gal or it could be for whatever. But but he, he flips the tables and he betrays the person that is his target. Well, the setting for The Sting is 1936. And, and there's something interesting in that movie uh, that it's sort of a nod to that era. And what it is is that the director of the movie set it up so that different sections of the movie are introduced through things called title cards. And at the beginning... The screen goes black, and these words appear, the players. And then there's a scene where the, the major players of the movie are introduced, and then there's another time shortly thereafter where the screen goes black, and another word or, or phrase goes up, the setup. And then later on, the hook. And, and so every little section of the movie has these title cards. And it's, it's, used, it's unusual because usually movies just sort of go from one part of the story to the next part of the story seamlessly. And they tell the story that way. The viewer is not usually told, now we are starting a new chapter of this movie. You know, but it sort of does that in the movie The Sting. Well, we've begun a journey here at, at uh, this church through the book of Romans. And there's a number of seamless transitions through the book of Romans. In fact, the, the chapter divisions that you read, there are 16 chapters in the book of Romans, but those chapter divisions, as you might know, weren't added until later. Originally, when these uh, the scripture was penned, it, it didn't have these chapter divisions, but they were uh, added later, and, and for good use, you know, we can sort of help identify where different passages of scripture are with these chapter divisions. But 
Normally, if you were to read this originally, there wouldn't be these chapter divisions or anything else. There wouldn't be title cards or anything like that that would tell you we're entering a new section. And the section of Romans that we're entering today is what I would call, to borrow a phrase from the sting, the setup. And so here's what here's what's happening here. Uh, if it was a setup like a con man would set up his target, um, that's not exactly what's happening here because Paul is writing this and he's not a con man, he's a righteous man. And he's not setting up a target in order to con them, to rip them off, but rather he's setting up the rest of the book of Romans in order to convince his readers to join him on his mission. So Paul has a mission in life, which he hinted to, in the first seven verses of the book of Romans. And now we're in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me, please. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. And here's the problem that Paul has. And here's the reason he set up this, this passage that we're going to study in depth today. It's this question. Paul is asking, how do I convince these people in Rome, hundreds of miles away from where I am, these people that I've largely never met, how do I convince them to join me on mission? It's not going to be easy. How should I convince them that they should support me, the apostle to all of the people of the earth who are not Jewish, all the Gentiles? How can I convince this church at Rome to join me in that mission? And so Paul decides he has to find something that connects him with these strangers hundreds of miles away. And he knows that if they are going to support him, they have to get to know him. And so in Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, in this series that I've called Romans, Mercy to All, I invite you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that, that is, that you may be established, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Heavenly Father, I pray that you enlighten our eyes and give us understanding of this passage and how it might apply to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So Paul gave his introduction. We studied that last week in verses 1 through 7 of the book of Romans. And he's talking in that, in that section about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that God has sent who has fulfilled all of the Old Testament promises. And now, Paul says, let's get down to business. And so the first thing he wants to do 
He says, the very first thing out of my lips is this. I thank God for you. Now, this is odd. How often have you prayed for a church that you've never visited? That's what Paul is doing. And there's a reason that Paul is thankful for them. We'll get to that in a minute. But the very first thing out of his mouth after the introduction is an idea of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and praise. And that should really be at the forefront of our lives. Have you ever noticed that grateful people, thankful people, are happy people? Have you ever noticed that grumpy people are selfish? They're just not thankful for much. They could have all the same stuff. They could have the same experiences. They could be married the same amount of time, have the same number of kids and grandkids. Why is one grateful and one selfish? Why is one happy and the other grumpy? Which comes first? I mean, does being grumpy make you selfish? Or does being selfish make you grumpy? I believe that selfishness leads to grumpiness. Someone who's always in it for themselves, someone who's always looking at themselves, me, my, how does this affect me? What's my bottom line? That person is going to be grumpy after a while because their focus is on themselves. They can't see anything but the the wrinkles in the mirror. They're not looking beyond the mirror, looking at the window, looking through the window to other people. I mean, if you want to be happy, here's how you do it. Here's how it starts. Give thanks for things. Be thankful for things. Be thankful for things. What's that hymn? How's that hymn go? About count your blessings. Name them one by one. That's good advice. Be thanks. Be thankful for things. Be thankful for people. Be thankful for people. That's even more important than stuff that we might acquire. It's the people in our lives that make a real difference. Be thankful for them. Oh, pastor, but you don't know what I put up with at home. Be thankful. Be thankful. It may not be perfect. At home, at work, at school, wherever. Be thankful. Because I guarantee you, there's someone worse off than you. Be thankful. Your emotions, once you start to be thankful, I promise you, your emotions will catch up to your words and your thoughts of gratitude. And the reason that we can be thankful, the reason that Paul has gratitude is, he says in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Never forget. We can be grateful because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I mean, if you can't be thankful for anything else, if things are going so bad, one thing never changes. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you. Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the grave to give you eternal life. You can be thankful for that, even if everything else is going on. Even if that's all you got, that's enough to be thankful. Be thankful. Be a thankful person. 
Paul says, I give thanks to God because of you, because of you, church, that I've never met. I've heard about your testimony. That's incredible. Paul's hundreds of miles away. He hasn't been to Rome yet. And yet he's heard through the grapevine. He didn't have email. He didn't have a cell phone. He had to hear the old-fashioned way. People had to get on a boat and travel and talk to people face to face. Paul heard the old-fashioned way about the faith of this church in Rome and the capital city of the entire empire. These Christians that were there that may have been on the forefront of facing all kinds of persecution. Paul heard about them, about their faith. And he says, I thank God for you because I've heard about your faith. The testimony of your faith is widespread. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you that, is the testimony of your faith widespread? Let me rephrase it. Do the people in your world know that you're a Christian? I hope so. I hope so. I hope you act like it, too, and not just say it. But the people in your world ought to know that you're a Christian. They ought to know about your faith. I mean, if everybody that knew you suddenly found out tomorrow that you are a follower of Christ, would they be surprised? Would they be shocked? Him? Her? Follower of Christ? you got to be kidding me. Or would they might... Maybe another Christian would say, oh, I never knew. They never said anything at work or school or anywhere else they went. They never told me that they were a follower of Christ. If I wanted to make you feel real guilty, and I don't. And that person died and stood before God. And they were sentenced to an eternity without Christ. Would they accuse you in hell of never telling them? But I don't want to make you feel guilty. I do want to let you know it's serious. People's eternities are at stake. Okay? Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of him. Okay? Let people know, hey, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Are you? Not that hard to get that conversation started. Here's what you do. Tomorrow at work or school or today even, wherever you might be, if there's someone that you run into that you encounter and you realize, you know, you've just never brought it up. You've never mentioned that you're a follower of Christ. Here's what you do. Surprise them. Just tell them. Hey, I just wanted you to know. I got this crazy preacher. He wants me to do this. Okay, just, just humor me for a minute. I just want you to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's important to me. And Jesus is in my life. And I hope he's in your life too. My, my guess is if you tell someone that, they might say, he's in my life too. And y'all have been secret Christians, neither one knowing each other. And now it's, the cat's out of the bag. Or it might be that they may, they may say, oh, really? I... Tell me about that. I don't know. I've never heard. Or they might say, I might even say, not me, I'm an atheist. Okay, still love you. No problem. Talk to people about your faith. It's not that hard. It's the people in your world. One author wrote this, the growth of the church has always been contingent 
upon the openness of believers to express their faith. That's true. If the church, with the big C, the universal church, whatever you want to call it, is to grow, it, it means that regular people like you and me have to tell other people that we're, yeah, we're Christians and we invite you to be as well. So you might not be famous, but the people that you know should know that you follow Christ. Verse 9. Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Paul says, you know, if we were to have a trial, I could call God to be a witness as to my behavior that I pray for you all the time. Paul says, I pray for this church all the time. I mean, why, though? Why would Paul pray for a church that he had not yet visited? I mean, that's just not something that people do. But he gives us a clue why he prays for the church at Rome. Now, now I've told you before, when you study Scripture, you need to look and see in the scriptures, you need to read it carefully, look at those scriptures to see what doesn't need to be there in order to make sense. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 9 again. There's a phrase in verse 9. You could take it out, those of you who are English teachers, you could take this phrase out and it would still make sense. Verse 9 could say this, For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Still makes sense. Means the same thing. But Paul added something there. And it's important. This little parenthesis, this little part between the commas is important. It's not just God can be my witness as to how much I pray for you, but Paul describes who this God is. He says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his son. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying God's not just not a distant deity that I pray to. God, Paul says, is the one to whom I'm a slave. He said that back in verse 1 of this chapter. I'm a slave to God. I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's how I serve God, according to verse 9. I serve God in a very particular way. By preaching the gospel of His Son. That's it. That's my calling in life. The proclamation of the gospel. This is what I'm all about. So I serve God in one way. I do one thing. I tell people about Jesus. That's what I do. It is that God that I pray to. And He can be a witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers. But what in the world does Paul's mission in life have to do with them? He's never met them. He continues, he explains a little more in verse 10. He says, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Paul says, I pray for you because I want to come visit you. I want to be there with you. You see, the meeting that Paul anticipates between himself and this church that he had never met, this meeting is so important that Paul needs the Holy Spirit to visit first. Paul wants God to do something 
in the church at Rome before Paul ever makes it there. And maybe Paul wants God to do something in himself before he makes it there. He says, so I, I plan on coming. I hope to come. I hope God wills that I can make it there. And so I pray for you all the time. Begs the question again, why? Why does Paul want to go to Rome? There's a lot of big cities back then. What's so, what's so important about visiting Rome? He gives us more clues in verse 11. Verse 11 begins this way. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. Paul anticipates that when I visit you there in the church of Rome, I'm going to give you a spiritual gift. What is this all about? Paul's saying, I'm going to give you a spiritual gift. By the way, I'm going to chase a rabbit for a minute. We've come to believe something about spiritual gifts that I think, a couple of things about spiritual gifts that I think is, is largely wrong. Uh, generally speaking, we've come to believe that spiritual gifts, the typical teaching is spiritual gifts are, are special endowments by God given to a Christian at the time of that Christian salvation. And that that spiritual gift is something that is sovereign by the will of God. The Christian has no say in it. It's just a gift given to you. And once you have it, it's sort of yours and you're supposed to exercise it for the edification of the church. Sounds really good. Problem is, it doesn't really fit with everything Scripture says about spiritual gifts. For example, if that were the case, if spiritual gifts were instantaneous endowments by God given to you at the moment of salvation, then how is it that Timothy's spiritual gift came on through the laying on of hands? Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.6, as he's writing to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That didn't happen at the moment of salvation. That happened later that Timothy acquired that spiritual gift. What's going on here? And again, if spiritual gifts were endowments given to us at the moment of salvation, endowments given according to God's sovereign will, with no input or choice whatsoever from you or me, then why in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, does Paul say to desire the greater gifts? That's exactly what he says. He says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. I mean, what sense does it make for God to tell me to desire greater gifts if he didn't endow me with those gifts. Doesn't make any sense. Maybe the common conception of what spiritual gifts are is based more on speculation and less on an in-depth study of spiritual gifts. Here's what the New Testament actually teaches about spiritual gifts, and I'll just give it to you in a nutshell. Spiritual gifts are edifying ministries. They are actions that we do that benefit the body of Christ, God's people. That's what spiritual gifts are. Paul says, I want to come to Rome because I want to do something for you that will benefit you. What is it? What is it Paul wants to do at Rome? I mean, does he tell us? He gives us a clue what it is in the last part of verse 11. Verse 11 says, again, For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, 
that you may be established. What's that word mean? Strengthened. Paul says, I want to strengthen your faith. I want to establish you like cement, like a foundation, strong in the ground, that nothing, no wind of, of uh, the tides or whatever else can blow you down. I'm going to strengthen you when I come to you. Someone might read this and say sort of sarcastically, well, Paul sure is full of himself, isn't he? I want to come to your church so I can bless you. But it's not exactly like that. Paul's not saying it like that. Because he's not the only one blessing others. Look at verse 12. He says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul says, when I come to you, yes, I'll just state it plainly. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be strengthened. But guess what? You're going to bless me too. And that's the way it is. When the man of God preaches, God's people, if they're listening to the Holy Spirit, they are blessed. But they're not the only ones. Whether you realize it or not, the man of God has blessed himself. For example, often after I preach, people tell me that the Lord spoke to them. And I'm glad for that. And here's the, here's the fun thing for me. That the Lord spoke to them in a way that I never anticipated. That's the Holy Spirit at work. That's not me coming up with certain words. I don't sit in my study and I think, oh, there's old Bobby Jones. He's right over here. I'm going to write a sermon and I'm going to speak right to his situation. I don't do that. I preach the scriptures. And if the Holy Spirit says something to Bobby Jones or whoever or you, it's the Holy Spirit at work. And so... When I hear stories of how God spoke to someone in a way that I never anticipated when I was preparing a sermon, it means God's at work, and that's an encouragement to me. It's a confirmation to my spirit that God is at work, sometimes in spite of me. But God is always at work among His people. And so I could say right along with Paul, I am encouraged together with you while among you while among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine, you encourage me just as much as I encourage you. And I hope that the Holy Spirit's at work in all of our hearts. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul says, hey, I've had plans for a while to visit Rome. I've been wanting to come there. It's a burning desire in my heart. I just haven't been able to make it. I've been prevented. Prevented by what? Prevented by enemies? Maybe. Probably, probably not so much enemies, but I think more he was probably prevented by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the right time yet to go to Rome. Because if Paul was able to go to Rome... As soon as Paul wanted to go to Rome, guess what we wouldn't have? The book of Romans. Paul had to write this entire book, the longest of any of them that he wrote, because he couldn't get to Rome yet. And he needed to prepare the church of Rome for, for his visit and for what God would do afterwards. And he says, there's a reason I want to visit the church of Rome he says in verse uh, 13, 
so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. What's this fruit that Paul wanted to obtain? If Paul was a, uh, a greedy TV evangelist, the fruit, we know what the fruit would be. Money. I want money. I want to go to the capital city of Rome because it's a big one. And I'm going to give me a big church. And I'm going to have thousands of people. And I'm going to get a big salary. That's not Paul's heart at all. Paul wasn't into it for money. You don't get beaten within an inch of your life like Paul did on multiple occasions if you're just some greedy gut preacher. No. Paul says, I want to obtain some fruit among you also. Here's what Paul's talking about. Every place that Paul went, he preached the gospel. And when people got saved, that was his fruit. That was evidence that God is at work there. And Paul says, I've got to get to Rome because there's some fruit waiting for me there. I've got to preach the gospel there. And here's a preview of where Paul's going. Paul's saying, I need the church of Rome to support me because there's other places I have yet to go. I've got to preach the gospel. That's the fruit. Listen, here's how you obtain spiritual fruit. You're not the Apostle Paul, neither am I. Okay, you might say, oh, that's nice for the Apostle Paul. But that doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it does. Here's how it applies to you. You may not be the Apostle Paul, but I, I promise you, if you're a believer in Christ, God has a calling upon your life. He has a purpose for you to fulfill. And when you find out what that is, and you align yourself with that, and you begin to fulfill your purpose in life, you obtain fruit. You make a difference in people's lives. Let me ask you, do you know what God has called you to do? God has not called everybody to be a pastor and stand behind a pulpit or to minister to God's people as a pastor. But God has called some to be plumbers for Him. He's called some to be engineers for Him. He's called some to be students for Him. He's called some to be deacons for Him. He's called some to serve to the best of their ability in some capacity for him. And when you do that, you obtain fruit because you're doing that which God has called you to do. God has given all of his children a ministry to accomplish. And if you don't know what God wants you to do with your life, ask him. And you might say, well, I'm old. So was Moses. Moses was older than any of us here and God was still using him. I don't care how old you are. And it doesn't matter how disabled you are. Do not come to God making excuses, saying, I can't. God laughs at that. Because no matter how disabled you are, I know there's one thing that you can do. And it's the best ministry of all. It's the ministry of prayer. All of us can pray. Even a person, a believer in Christ, who cannot read Scripture, who's never been taught to read, he can pray. He can pray to his Father. There's a ministry that God has for you. Maybe praying, maybe doing, I don't know what it might be. It might be preaching the gospel. 
I don't know what it is, but God has called all of us to a ministry. And Paul says, I've got to do what God's called me to do because there's fruit out there for me. Paul says in verses 14 and 15, he sort of wraps it up here. He says, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, I owe barbarians. I owe people I've never met. I owe them. What do you owe them? I owe them Jesus. I've got to give them Jesus. I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I'm in debt to them. And until I preach the gospel to them, I remain in debt. Listen. You have a world an oikos is the Greek word, a household, a sphere of influence. Your world, you know what I mean when I say your world. It's your family, it's your friends, it's your world. You have a world that you owe. You're in debt to them. I don't owe them anything. Yes, you do, Christian. You owe them a chance to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You owe them. You're in debt to them. We have to get this through our minds because they're not in my world most likely. I can't do it. They're not in Paul's world. Paul's long gone. They're in your world. We owe them the gospel to the best of our ability even if you stumble through the words, even if you don't know exactly what to say, just point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Let them know that you're a follower of Him. Don't be ashamed. Paul had encountered Jesus, spent three years with Him in the desert, spent the rest of his life with a very specific plan to go from town to town, telling complete strangers about Jesus, starting churches and moving on. That's what Paul did for the rest of his life until he went home to be with the Lord. The duty that you and I have is much, much less than that. The likelihood of every one of us packing all of, all of our things and moving to a distant land to tell strangers about Jesus probably just won't happen for most of us. It's a possibility God could call you to do it. But I do know what God requires of you today is to tell your world about the Lord. We're under obligation to do so. We're under obligation. Paul says, I'm writing this big old long book to you I'm going to unfold all of my beliefs about God and Christ and sin and angels and mankind and everything because I need you to know my heart. My heart is I am on mission for God. Will you join me? We ought to say 2,000 years later, Paul will join you because that mission's not yet accomplished. There's people I know that need the Lord.
and I'm under obligation to tell them.